Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of one of our special interviews we have with us, Dr. Tim Kane, the former um, intelligence officer from the uh, US Air Force, but also the research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Let's go to Dr. Tim Kane first to talk about the state of affairs in the world and also in America. Uh, welcome to the show, by the way. How are you? Oh, I'm great. And thanks so much. Good to be with you. Good. Um, what is happening in the world? What is happening? Well, firstly, in your country, uh, in terms of the, the global affairs and, uh, in, well, of course, in terms of security, national security. Well, I, we, we've had a bit of a, a political difficulty. I think you may have heard our two main political parties have decided to get a little strange and uh, things have changed now. We have a new president. Uh, our Senate is locked 50-50. And for whatever reason, you'd think that means that would bring people together. But I've, in my experience, the closer the balance is in the Senate, the more vicious and partisan the politics can be. So it's a 50-50 split. Um, but you know what? We, we tend to think that everything boils down to politics, and um, it doesn't. Often it's what are people doing in business and the private sector and scientists and doctors. They've made great progress. Um, you know, the, the vaccination program that's being implemented worldwide. And I think England's a great leader in showing here's how you get it done. Here's how you build up community immunity. Um, that, that's actually really good news. But it's hard to think there's good news in the wake of Afghanistan. I mean, this is a generational, horrible moment, catastrophic. And I have very strong feelings about this. Um, I think we had done great things, particularly our two countries had been the most committed to Afghanistan and helping um, what some people will call nation build. But I think just just provide basic security for human rights so that the Afghans can can build a democracy or, or you know, just build civil society that was working. It was working for the past 20 years. So it's been frustrating to see the abandonment of that. And I think even. Um, Brits are frustrated at the Americans' poor planning, and this this does fall on the Biden administration. So yeah, it's it's a tough week. Yeah, it is. Uh, to be fair, one thing I've discovered about the the fall of Afghanistan is whether you are a you know classic neocon interventionist or a complete libertarian isolationist that hates any intervention on war. Uh, both sides have now come together in terms of uh, the reaction to it because of the way the U.S. government handled this because. Whether you thought that you know initially it was a bad idea, we should never get involved, uh, or we should sometimes get involved, we at this point Afghanistan right now were our allies. Uh, so if, for example, somebody attacked Israel or France, we would go and support them and defend them. Uh, so if we were to intervene now, um, it, it wouldn't really count as an intervention, as in we're going into a new random country because we were already right. there, there to support them. But that's, I think that's what a lot of people don't understand because they keep comparing any possible um, support that we could have given them now. Uh, they compare it to any, like Iraq or if we go to Iran tomorrow. It's very different, isn't it? Mm. Oh, it is. And I think you're right to say the, the Afghans are our allies. So I think when the president said the other day, hey, we're going to be there as long as we need to to make sure we protect American citizens and our allies, and I think he was you know, meaning our NATO allies, but I, I heard that as the people of Afghanistan. And here we have to make a distinction. I was never in favor of US and UK forces based in, in these you know far off provinces fighting the Taliban to support the government of Afghanistan. We're not there for the government of Afghanistan. They are dysfunctional, right? Their president was, a, was terrible. 
We were there for the people of Afghanistan, the women of Afghanistan. You know, so so I've done a little research on what good we've done. And I've given some talks, Mayor, to uh, to American servicemen. Um, and there's this feeling, there's a worry about PTSD and this shock of, my God, we were there. We, we sacrificed so much, thousands of lives. Um, in, in the UK's case, nearly 500 uh, service members' lives given in Afghanistan. And, and for what? For nothing. And it's not true that it was for nothing. The literacy rate has doubled since our intervention in Afghanistan. The number of, of girls uh, who could read went from one out of nine to three out of nine after 10 years, and it's five out of nine now. So we didn't just build schools, because there's a problem when you build schools where they don't have any teachers or funding. We built schools, we invested in them, we protected them, we nurtured this new generation. And to see that abandoned is tough, but I wouldn't take anything away from the good that was done for 20 pretty glorious years. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what you have to do. You fight every day for civilization. Right. No, I think that's true. I mean, again, uh, there, there will be a lot of people who would focus way too much on uh, the initial intervention. But I think you're right that we did make some progress, at least. And, and, and Afghans made progress. And to be fair, I give the credit to the people of Afghanistan for the, for the progress, not the government. That's right. Uh, because uh, I think that one of the reasons the government fell was corruption at the top of the establishment was key. Um, so they let their own people down as well as the Biden administration let uh, the Afghans down. Uh, so that, I think that's one key point. But uh, you, um, you, of course, you have experience in uh, your history in terms of uh, US, US intelligence and Air Force and other areas. Have you seen any change uh, over the years in terms of the, the American defense, but also the intelligence community, how it works. Is it changed? Has it got better or worse, weaker? In a lot of ways, the American military is sort of unmatched. Like if, if, if our military had to fight against, you know, Eisenhower's army, um, you, you know, of course, we're, we're so efficient and productive and lethal. And I'm extremely proud of our service members. We shifted away from the draft in 1973. That's something that's been debated, but there's really no contest now. We know that having volunteers, you, you get a much higher quality uh, soldier who's smarter, who's stronger, who has higher morale. So you know, I think in a lot of ways, um, we've done everything right. One of the best leadership organizations in the world. But it's it's sort of been mixed into the concrete is this monstrous bureaucracy. Like everything in modern life has become bureaucratized. Yeah. And I think some of the decision making is bureaucratized and the way we think about things <clears throat> on a strategic level is very bureaucratized. So this idea of nation building, people pretend it's something that's new. This has been around for thousands of years when yeah. one nation or empire conquered another. What did they do? And we actually used to be pretty darn good at it. Um, and I think in the best possible way. So my service experience was I was stationed in Japan. But I was also stationed in Korea. And Korea is not a country we conquered. Korea is a country that was all about defending them from communist aggression. And it wasn't an insta-democracy. It wasn't like, oh, well, let's get them to vote and everything's good. It was corrupt um, and it was uh, authoritarian for a while. But we, we helped nurture a free market and education for boys and girls. And now it's, I think, the 11th largest economy in the world. And it's really the geography of Korea. It should not be that wealthy and prosperous. But it's the Koreans themselves that emerged in all their potential. It's, it's with the great success story, I think, of the past century. And to have institutionally forgotten what we knew in 1950, mm -hmm. 
by by 2000. So half a century strategic vision about how to create and help foster a, a new nation. It's um, it's embarrassing. Right. And and uh, I think there are some people who still get it, but not enough. Yeah, I mean, firstly, you mentioned uh, we've done nation building and actually it's, it's it's worked and sometimes we've had some success stories. One perfect example is the British and, you know, we call it the empire, whatever we want to call it, because there are a lot of people who just focus on negatives. Uh, but, you know, there are some things that um, they help the world in terms of uh, ex uh, exporting, exporting free trade and the, the law and order and the justice system. Um, the problem here is that uh, we're talking about a time when all countries were either empires or wanted to be empires. And America is always a success story with all the flaws, even right now. You have a, a new book uh, coming up, uh, which is uh, The Immigrant Superpower, which is about, uh, of course, your country. And so uh, tell us more about this uh, literature, piece of literature, and uh, what, what, it, what is the purpose behind it? Well, yeah, I thanks so much for, for wanting to talk about this. It's it's uh, forthcoming from Oxford University Press. Um I, I haven't written a lot of books, and so I'm ready to talk about this and have it for sale now. I think Oxford's one of these the oldest presses in the world. And some of my friends ask me, like, wow, that sounds distinguished. You know, who else? Who? 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 What other authors do they have? And it turns out Oxford um, published the King James Bible for a few centuries. So I said, you know, it's St. <laughs> Luke. St. John, Tim Kaine, it's a pretty good mix of, of authors. <laughs> Karl um, Marx, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> Thanks. Um, listen, it's a story that's trying to remind Americans who are hawks like me that we want um, enlightenment values to continue to spread around the world. We've been fighting for those. We believe in these ideas that are, you know, in the Magna Carta and in the Constitution about, you know, individual rights. And, and we been really successful here, and we want to fight against um, authoritarian systems that you find in Moscow and China, okay? Yeah. And if you ask your typical hawk, what's the most important thing that we win? They would say, we've got to make sure our system of values beats the authoritarian system of values. And, and the, the, the boogeyman now is China. It used to be the Soviet Union. But okay, if you want to, would you do everything possible to win that conflict? Um, yeah, then we need immigration in every possible way. Immigration is the core, is two of the cornerstones right. of how we win that conflict. Because we, we knew, like Harry Truman knew this at the end of World War II. He yeah. it was like, how do you how do you think we'll win the Cold War? And Harry Truman said, well, our German scientists will be better than the Soviets' German scientists. Yeah. There was this race to get German rocket scientists that were going to build the weapons of the next war, and it turned out to be a war of you know prevention mutually assured destruction, <clears throat> but having all the Chinese brains that, that come to our universities, Oxford, Cambridge, UCL, yeah. Stanford, that want to stay, our right. attitude has been, hey, you got your diploma, now get out. Yeah. That's got, that mentality has to change. Well, I would say, I, I, that was advocate here, um, there is definitely a, a point in terms of taking advantage of the talents from those countries, especially even China, uh, make sure they, you know, we get them because there's economic benefit. Um, but the devil's advocate bit is here in terms of the ones who are more, uh, in terms of border, they're more pro, like more conservative and traditionalist because they fear. And we had, we had the problem here in London where the CCP in China have sent some of their 
members and spies who are currently sure. working in the financial services in banks in London. Uh, so how would we balance that up? Uh, I mean, obviously, of course, welcome people and the talents, steal the talent essentially from them. Because uh, yeah. actually America did it uh, with uh, Iran. Now, post-1979 revolution, a lot of talent and brain from Iran are now in America. A lot of them are actually working in top places like NASA and, and California, the, everywhere. So, but how would we balance that with uh, the potential threat of spies from China, for example? Yeah, it's it's I mean, case by case basis, absolutely, and it's a it's an issue I think that was true before. You know, I'm I'm former intelligence guy, and I worked in human intelligence, so this actually colored my experience in that many of the men and women who are U.S. citizens that I worked with were Egyptian Americans, Persian Americans, um, and we needed them, and we needed you know I I was actually a real knucklehead at, at languages. But having that language fluency so that we can sort of plug into any situation and understand the culture is, is sort of essential to winning. Um, try to imagine China getting involved. Let's say there's a conflict in, in Africa or in Brazil. And for whatever crazy reason, you've got, you know, uh, U.S. and U.K. on one side mm -hmm. of Brazil's civil war and China. How, how does China connect with Brazil? I, I just don't see it where we've got those familial relationships yeah. already and cultural understanding. So, you know, the long view is, yeah, th this is a sword that cuts both ways. But I would just say that it's much sharper on the on the benefit side yeah. than it is on the cost side. And we, we certainly have to be aware of those. But I would take it one step further, where a lot of Americans that I speak with who are more conservative will say, you're absolutely right about the people that are highly educated. But what about, you know, all these refugees, you know, all these really poor, illiterate Syrians? I mean, we yeah. don't want them, right? And I would say, no, no, no. The refugees have proven to be some of the most patriotic and in the long term, beneficial contributors. I have a friend, a friend named uh, France Hong, who's a two-year-old refugee from Vietnam, went to West Point, joined the army, top of his class. He, Mary's created, I think, three companies that employ over a thousand people. But he also went and fought in Afghanistan. Yeah. And he's just—he's he, the—he's more patriotic than I am. These are people that understand without America's embrace their families would have been extinguished. So I think it's a very short view that you look at a man and a woman who may not have a lot of education or skills now, but their children can and will, and they'll be very committed in the long term. So I would rather have, frankly, a refugee mm -hmm. than a scientist who's got no connection at all to your country. Because yeah. it's very easy for a Middle Eastern scientist, and we know this is true from the 9-11 attackers, right? that they were highly educated, many of them, but they were alienated because they didn't have any cultural connection to yeah. the societies they lived in, in Germany, in the United States. And yeah, that's been a problem in the UK. I think assimilation isn't going as smoothly mm -hmm. um, in the UK as it is in the US. Well, I think the main reason is, uh, and I'm glad you explained it further because that's why they ask that question because this debate is usually so black and white. You either have people on this side or that side say, well, we either have to be completely uh, against or completely pro. Uh, and and right. the fact that you said it's case by case uh, and also the fact that you explain uh, cultural integration is more important. Um, and it's not about skin color or what you look like. It's actually about if you can relate to the new culture, the new nation. And we are we yeah. are having a problem in the UK. One of the reasons is uh, uh, it's, it's, it's now become very difficult to identify what Britishness is. 
as opposed to Americanism, because even though, of course, we would say or, or, always as a joke as Brits, oh, Americans, you don't really have a culture, you know, where's, where's the heritage, <laughs> of course, compared to the Anglo-Saxons. But you have one thing as, as a new baby, uh, only a few hundred years, yeah. this concept, the identity of Americans is so open uh, to everyone. So the first wave of uh, migrants when they get to America, first generation, they can still adapt. Whereas uh, it's very hard for the first generation to adapt to the German culture or you know, again, even the uh, British culture or the Italian culture. Uh, that's the beauty of America, I think. And uh, that's um, you, you give the, the opportunity to the first generation to become American if they want to. And that's, uh, I think, one of the reasons the Democrats were so shocked that all the Hispanic voters were going for Trump, even though they were immigrants. Because right. they were like, because we're already American. That's, you know, yeah. that we're, we're American, we're voting for America. Well, and it's something I think that... The... Our culture is is young and it's vibrant and it's based on being not rooted in any one ethnicity, which is which yeah. is, gives us a bit of an advantage. And there are only two kinds of people that that think um, that that there is this white supremacy. And one of them are sort of hard right, alt right, whatever you want to call them, yeah. um, old South Confederacy. Uh, but but they lost. Yeah. So the only people that are really saying this really matters and we need to build our culture around skin color are the hard left now, the yeah. critical race theorists. And the, we're so lucky that we've got an immigrant uh, community that's saying, that's garbage. I don't want my children taught to go into separate rooms and separate classes mm. to identify by skin color. I mean, frankly, any Afghan children that are here that are refugees would be considered white under yeah. our ridiculous racial bean counting. And there's no privilege, let's be honest, in being an Afghan refugee today. Mm. Um, we need to throw out thinking about skin color uh, into the ash heap of history. Yeah. But what we get right is assimilation into a value set mm. that, that we should trumpet. And I think when Britain, and maybe Britain's worse at this, I, I you have to tell me, when you're almost embarrassed to say, we're going to have a test, you've got to pass the test or you can't yeah. become a citizen. You've got to know this history. I mean, frankly, immigrants to America have to pass a citizenship test. They know more about American history than your typical teenager <laughs> who's, who was born in, I don't know, Iowa. That's embarrassing, but uh, it's a smart system. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, any attempt that at least trying to make it work helps. And you're right, the, the, the old school uh, very, very far right, uh, actual racist nationalist uh, or alt right, whatever you want to call it. They are a very minority. They, they, like, and it's just they, they, as you said, they got defeated. They didn't, especially in America. It's, it's so weird that they now it's the hard left trying to make it seem like oh they're dominating the country now. Uh, and oh, Trump yeah. became president. That that means everyone's going to wake up tomorrow and become racist. And that's what I was going to ask you before. The, the final question, which is going to be give us some hope and the future of America, is uh, w uh, what sort of Republican would you say you are? A Reaganite or a Bush senior oh. or a Lincolnite? <laughs> yeah, I'm not trying to hide that. Reagan, Reagan's just the, my he's my hero. And he wasn't always like I was like most young people. I was uh, left of center and thought there should be more sharing. Oh. But Reagan was my president at the time. And I've just grown to appreciate him more and more. I've read books about him. Mm. Um I didn't realize how profoundly pro-immigration he was, yeah. pro-open trade, where you see the populace on the right now drifting from those principles. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. And he made a point, you know, when you're a president that successful and you're, you're going to retire, imagine you have one last speech to give. Reagan's farewell address, within the first two minutes, he was talking about immigration. 
he was talking about the glory of uh, the boat people, they called them back then, that were fleeing Vietnam, that were picked up by a, a, a Navy vessel that was there to rescue ships in the water, in the sea there. And this, uh, this refugee said, you know, was waving and said, hello, American sailor. Hello, freedom man. Reagan loved that story, and he loved telling that story. And that's how he left, saying, this is what's made our country great. So I'm absolutely a, a Reaganite out. And um, we need to remind people that's those were the glory days for a reason, you know, embracing free trade. And, you know, I don't I thought you might want to talk about this Atlantic Charter and Brexit a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, I was a bit neutral on Brexit, but I think a lot of the Brexiters got something right in that trade is great. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean you give up your sovereignty, yeah. and your regulatory power and immigration to some foreign government and just layers on labor market bureaucracy. Like that's not what the EU was supposed to be, right. but you could have predicted it was going to do that yeah. power. Grab. Yeah. And at least the Brits had the sense to keep their own currency, well, yeah. which I don't think, I don't think the debt issues related to the EU are, um, or anything you really want to join forces on. So there's a there's a balance there to be found, and I think Britain's still finding it. In the meantime, I'm excited to get nation or ties between our two countries closer. Yeah, I just well, I I'm not hopeful under Biden, but uh, <laughs> maybe we have to wait for a bit. <laughs> we can't even get a trip. You can't even come for a visit. I mean, it's the 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 travel rules are insane. But this guy and, was supposed uh, to be a well, it was who was supposed to be a good liberal um, or right wing liberal as we call it in Britain uh, because. But he's not. He's he's actually anti-trade. He's he came out the first thing he said as president that I'm not going to prioritize um, free trade, including with Britain post Brexit, Britain and the others. I'm just going to focus. He basically did America first, but in a bad huh. way, in the wrong way, and that that's the yes. problem. Um, and uh, before I get your perspective on him, is the uh, Brexit and you mentioned in terms of trade. That's why I was trying to differentiate globalism and internationalism, uh, because globalism as a word has now obviously been dominated by. The people who the people who are the elitists, the European Union types, the federalistic people who want to destroy sovereignties and democracies, and so that's why I'm now using the word internationalist because that's still more. You still keep your sovereignty and your identity, but you're actually open to the world. You, you know, trade freely and everything else. And it's just a sad thing that the labels matter. Um, but yeah, so what's the hope with uh, President Biden and everything else in America? Do we have to wait for three more years or seven years? <laughs> I, I, I think the midterm elections will be really important. Um, and look, Biden was, um, as a guy on the right, um, I thought Biden was the best of some pretty bad alternatives. Mm -hmm. um, he brings some grace to the office. I'm not sure I like his judgment on, on Af Afghanistan and some yeah. foreign policy issues. But yeah, look, let's not kid ourselves. He's a union Democrat, right? He's an old school, if, the, if it's good for labor. And I think that that worldview is wrong. There's nothing wrong with capital. There's nothing wrong with capitalism and profits. Uh, and this is going, you know, sort of way bigger. But the way to solve the challenges of labor are to have them be profit sharers, right? Mm. Give them stock options. Those were all innovations that Karl Marx couldn't couldn't imagine. Mm. But we solved a lot of those tensions. So now we're left to teachers mandating masks in schools instead of prioritizing the education of the children. Um, and we're left with unions basically don't like trade. So we're going to see a lot and hear a lot um, from this president, which I think is wrongheaded about trade. But I don't expect him to go backwards necessarily. Mm. Uh, it's just 
progress is messy. Um, sometimes people overreach. To your point, they go for full globalism. And um, yeah, we need to find that smart balance. I think Reagan and Thatcher had it. Yep. And uh, that's certainly my life's goal is to get back to those values. And, and I think we're going to win. You know, history's on our side. Well, that's some positive word that helps. And <laughs> with everything that's been happening, you're right. I mean, we actually mentioned in terms of workers and the, the bosses uh, and profit sharing, things like that. We have a good example in this country, uh, a big um, de department store called uh, John Lewis. And they, they the staff um, all own the, the company. Uh, so it's automatic. You become an employee and you, you're part of the shareholding and, and, and stakeholders uh, so it's, it's a big partnership essentially so that really helps um, i'm not saying all companies should have a partnership model but uh, that, in a classic limited company that gives the, the staff the priority for you know buying share that really helps they're they're famous here even though we don't have their stores because of the um the christmas commercial that comes yes. out every year <laughs> My my family and I sat around and and watched watched those as part of a Christmas <laughs> tradition now, and I think we got hooked by the um, um, Elton John <laughs> yeah. uh, commercial. So yeah, very. I didn't realize they were they were employee it's, it's owned. The big fantastic. partnership, yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's quite it, it, the model. It's the only, uh, as far as I know, actually, big big business like that that has that model, and it works for them, and it's, it's really good, and um, it actually has reduced the financial corruption at the top of the firm. Uh, as opposed to some others who you know still do a lot of stuff. Well, that's just not in a weird way. It's normal. <laughs> Shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. But corporations try to, to do a lot of things. Um, so yeah, John Lewis is a good example. But having said that, there is still hope for the future. I mean, especially the relationship between the UK and uh, the US. Um, and I believe that the people at the top of the establishment, regardless of who's prime minister or president, will still try to push and influence to, have, to keep this special relationship, I guess. Um, yeah. Any last few words before we go? No, I was. I I just was wondering um, how frustrating it is about the travel issue. I oh, think yeah. we need to. Um, I think we need to just keep hammering the Biden administration. There's one particular executive, mm -hmm. and I know the White House is actually riven over this. So there are a lot of White House staffers that share the frustration. The Americans blocking. Uh, tourists and mm. students from coming here, it's not science-based. And yet they say, we're going to follow the science. When when our when our Delta variant is already raging in this country and England has higher vaccination rates than Americans, yep. and yet we, we're allowing unvaccinated people from South America to flood across the border, I, I think we just, I, I don't know what to do. I'm a little frustrated and I want, well, I want your suggestions. How do we beat this drum any louder that this is not a science-based policy and it's hurting the, those relationships that we need to strengthen? Well, this is a good question because it's not just the American government. All, all governments, or at least the Western democracies, they, they, they're all making mistakes, different areas. And uh, well, sometimes it's a mistake, sometimes uh, it's just a wrong move. Uh, so in America right now, as you said, one of the issues is the restrictions that you have with travel and everything else. In the UK, we have some other problems uh, with uh, some of the, well, especially over the last uh, six to nine months, uh, even when we didn't have a national lockdown, we had lockdown through the back, back door. It was really weird. Um, the issue here is that the people who've been advocating against it and try to be skeptical or scrutinize the government, um, they're, they're not the right messengers. Uh, they, they, mm. So they, they don't have the credibility. So that's why the cause of uh, science, because that's our side. We're trying to say go with uh, data, not date. That's mm -hmm. the UK thing that we keep saying, go with data, not data, because our government keeps pretending, saying, well, we're just going to go with the data. 
We're not going to give any dates, but they're, in, in reality, they're, they're not going to be data. Um, the best way to do it is, I guess, uh, we have to, well, keep fighting back, especially in the media and everywhere else. But we, unfortunately, we have to l let them go through this phase until it's finished. Um, and then it's, it's a whole, then force them to learn next time. Uh, again, it's just being very, yeah. very optimistic, uh, only because it is getting to towards the end anyway. So you can't really make a radical change unless right. some of these governments, including Australia, don't stop and they keep going and going and going, then you have to do something about it. And I don't, I don't think street protests are effective. Um, I just think that uh, using, again, platforms, public platforms and media is slightly better. Uh, but uh, yeah, my view is uh, we just have to let the West to go through this phase of all the mistakes. And then, especially when it comes to elections, especially when it comes to your next presidential election and our next uh, general elections, to then have the candidates to come up and expose everything that now we know about what happened in 2020 and 2021. And then if those who deserve to go, they will go. Yeah, yeah. Well, your com your system of governance is a complete mystery to us. I hope you know. <laughs> so we, we, we know our presidential election is at least three and a half years away. Yeah. Yours, I, I could be any is it on Tuesday or, or in eight years. I don't know. But go with data. I appreciate that. I'm going to try that one out some on some friends. Brilliant. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thanks again so much uh, for uh, coming on the show. I'll uh, uh, obviously put the link to the book when it's all obviously like ready and everything uh so that everybody could well, order it online or download it is it going to be a kindle you can pre-order it now oh yeah. you can do it the immigrant superpower and yeah. uh it, and it's got a lot of great stories about uh, both our countries and and one of one of the important things that i've emphasized is we don't win our wars without immigrants we don't win world mm -hmm. war one without all the immigrants um from Italy and, and Spain and um, Eastern Europe, but we don't win the Civil War without all the British immigrants that were still coming in so heavily. So, you know, we thank you for that. Brilliant. That's, I mean, that's a very, very good sentence to end this show. Thanks again for coming to the show. And hopefully we'll see you in London. All right. Sounds great. Take care, Mayor.